Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering all levels of education. Telling personal stories can be a powerful way to better understand who you are and to build confidence to face an ever-changing world. That has long been the premise of the storytelling nonprofit The Moth, which you may know from its popular radio show, which airs on hundreds of public radio stations around the country. On that show, people of all types tell transformative stories from their lives. The group has long worked with storytellers to help them hone their craft. And for more than a decade, it has run an education program with high schools, offering workshops to coach students to turn their stories into polished orations. This year, The Moth has started sharing those student stories in a new spinoff podcast called Grown. It's a place where they highlight the best of the thousands of stories that they've helped young people record over the years. So what do these student stories reveal about coming of age in this turbulent time? And how have these teen stories changed during and after the pandemic? For this week's episode, I connected with the co-host of this new Grown podcast, Aliza Cosme. It turns out that she knows the storytelling process firsthand. When she was 17 years old, she went through a moth workshop at her high school in New York City. And she said it was formative for her own personal development and growth. And the storytelling coach who worked with Aliza back then joined our call to give the educator's perspective. She's Melissa Brown, the Moth's Manager of Education and Instructor Programs. And as an added treat, we're going to play a recording of that story that Aliza Cosme told when she was a senior in high school. I started by asking Cosme to describe the mission of the new Grown podcast. Yeah, um, Grown is a podcast that's really unpacking how we're never fully grown. Um, I think there's been a lot of pressure put on especially young adults entering a workforce, uh, exiting their school years to have it all figured out. Uh, And as we hear through our stories and conversations and interviews with storytellers, that's just not the case. People at all phases of their life are still figuring things out from relationships to relationships with their bodies uh, to their career. And, you know, I think that it's really important for us just to be more honest about that because I think um, that can make the world a little bit, I don't know, more peaceful if we're all just honest about the fact that we're just not really having it all figured out yet. Yeah. And, and you do have on these, on the show, more young people, a lot younger storytellers than on The Moth historically. Can you talk about, you know, what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gosh, there's so much to go into with that. But um, what I'll say is that I had the opportunity to be a part of the Mott's education program when I was 17. And it was really a life changing experience, not only because it brought me into the world of the moth, but also being a young person and being told that I have a story to share and having people listen to it at that age is really powerful. And Melissa can definitely talk about that more on the instructor side of things. And so with Grown, we really wanted to take the, I mean, probably thousands and thousands of stories at this point of young people who've gone through the Moths education program uh, and give them a platform to be aired for a larger audience to listen to. And so what I have found really exciting about hearing these young people's stories now as someone who's 
quote unquote, an adult, um, is that they just, I am learning so much from these young people. Um, they are shedding light on things, on aspects of my own life, um, helping me navigate my adult years in ways that I wouldn't have thought about. Um, you know, they're just so insightful. And I think not only does the Moth have a wonderful archive of young people's stories, but um, there's new people entering the program every year. And so it's just sort of a never ending pipeline of uh, amazing young storytellers. And so on Grown, you know, getting to not only pair those stories with the stories of older folks, um, that's, I think, a really, really great way to tackle some complex issues, but also really handing the mic over to young people and be like, you know, you're told all the time how you're supposed to behave, how you're supposed to navigate into adulthood. Why don't you tell us what that's actually like? Um, yeah, and it's just been really invaluable listening to those stories. If you don't mind sharing, Aliza, how old are you now? I'm 25, 25 and a half. <laughs> I love it. In my world, a, a very young person, but you're the old person in this context. Uh, no, I mean, you know, that's the thing is like, I know I'm not, I'm not old, I, I still feel like a teenager, you know, but the world, I'm a, I'm a young professional, I manage people in my day job. And so I'm, I am an adult, according to the world. Um, still trying to figure out how to act like one, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a moth talk yourself then. And when you were quite young, when you were 17, you said? Yeah, yeah. And what was that like? You know, I guess, first of all, let's start with it going out on stage, because that's the part people hear as a listener. Um, and then we can back up to how you got there. But like, what was it like when you walked out on stage and you're telling your story as a 17-year-old to a room full of people in this public event? Oh, yeah. Let me think back to that day. It was such a special day. It was in my high school's black box theater. Um, and so there was, I don't know, maybe 100 people there, if that. And I couldn't really see the audience. But um, I just come through the, the workshop, which we definitely should talk about. Um, but... I just felt a lot of love in the room and to have people show up knowing they're just going to listen to, I guess it was 10 young people, um, was really special. And I wouldn't really feel a lot of stage fright. I think that's something unique to me. I don't really feel a lot of stage fright, but it's because I know, especially at a moth show that people are there to lift you up on a cloud of love as, as some of our hosts say, and, you know, really, um, to have a mic for five minutes at that age is really special. And I was, my story was actually talking about an experience I had with a teacher and um, it is a funny story, but also a heavy story. And I just felt really comfortable the entire time on that stage, really thanks to the audience and like the environment that was created by uh, the moth staff that day. But I would love to talk about the workshop because actually Melissa was uh, my instructor for that workshop. So she's known me since I was 17. Oh, that's perfect. So that is, I was just about to bring you in, Melissa. So, okay. I think a lot of listeners may not even know that there is this education program at the Moth. So first of all, what is this? And and then how did, how did it come together in this, you know, working with, you know, Aliza as an example? Sure. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that. Um, And yeah, Aliza and I go way back. I love thinking about that day in that black box theater. I really remember that vividly. So yes, the Moth has an education program. It is fantastic. We started in about 2012 officially with our residency program, which is sort of our flagship. We work with 10th through 12th graders in high schools. And now we do that both in person and virtually. So we're working with uh, students all across the country. 
and in person in the New York area, and we're expanding a little bit into Detroit and LA. We also work with some colleges and educators, so we do a lot of professional development for teachers as well. We're doing our Moth Teacher Institute next week, in fact. But yeah, we really all that is about is going into schools and creating a space, as Lisa said, where the students are at the center. It's all about storyteller agency and self-determination in how in self-expression, which might not be something that young people have had other opportunities to do. It's not something that's being asked of them. Um Maybe they know that they have a story. Sometimes they don't, but maybe they know they have a story, but they maybe haven't been asked to share it in their own voice, in the style that they want, without any other kinds of aesthetic standards or academic parameters around that. They're just asked to be themselves and be honest and take the microphone and share something true about themselves in whatever way they wish. And it can be a really powerful, beautiful thing. Um, I love rewinding back to Beacon High School and whatever year that was, Aliza. I want to talk about the philosophy because it, it look, looking on the website even, there's a clear sense of, uh, of you know, and we always... In you know, in any story, you want to have the stakes and understand the stakes. Why does storytelling matter for young people? Melissa, do you want to take that one? <laughs> well, we see it matter when we we meet these young people who often join the team not knowing what they're getting into. <laughs> they might think that they're there for a writing program or a poetry program, or they haven't maybe heard of the moth. And we start by really getting to know people, building trust, building community. And then we start playing games and eating snacks and sharing very low stakes truths about ourselves. That is always, you're always, as I said, it's a storyteller agency is central. So whatever you want to share and then we kind of scaffold sneakily up to sharing longer, true personal stories. And you just see these lights go on for people that they are, for one thing, we have a really, um, we have a structure around how we listen that's very much, you have these five minutes, no one is going to interrupt you. We are all here to hear from you. And sometimes it's the first time that these young people have ever had that happen. I think for adults, that often doesn't happen. And there's something incredibly brave and generous and extraordinary that can happen in that just knowledge that we care about you, about what you have to say. We are interested in listening to you talk about your life and your experience and your perspective. That can be build a lot of confidence and um, yeah, I just, we see young people really bloom, you know, in doing this work. And obviously there's a method to, to this. I, I, especially since I have you both here, can we talk about like remembering back to like, so what do you do with a, a, a 17 year old storyteller who, you know, is, never done this before 
what are the advice? Because the stories that we hear are so polished and so, you know, well told. And as an editor here in my publication, I can I know how much work it takes to get to, you know, to something like that. So what what do you what are some of the the sort of typical ways that happens and how did that happen with Elisa's story? Yeah, I'd love to hear Elisa's perspective on this as well. But we instead of sitting down with paper and pen and really crafting line by line, like you might do an essay or a piece of fiction, we're drafting socially. So we're drafting in community with one another, which the magic of that is that everyone's responsibility in that space is to help you to the best version of your story, your best version of your story, not anyone else's best version. And we do that through an oral practice of telling the story over and over again, and then feeding back to that person what we heard, what we loved. And as Lisa said, with that cloud of love, we always want to storyteller to know that at the end of their story, there will be a cloud of love. So we give them shout outs, we call them. And then we move into our craft comments. What's a shout out? What's an example of a shout out? Just a... Yeah, it's just, it's basically just a detailed compliment. Something that we noticed in your story, something we liked, a, a line that particularly stood out to us, something that resonated or affected us emotionally. Aliza, um, does this sound does this sound like what you remember? Before we get onto the craft part, yeah, I think um, just to give like a bit, like, paint the picture a bit of what that specific workshop looked like. It was people across eleventh um, and twelfth grade, and I was in my spring semester of my senior year, and so I was getting ready to go to college. Um, and the, the other students were people that I wouldn't have really come across in my school otherwise. I almost felt like the breakfast club a little bit, like, you know, kids from different areas, different cliques, different, um, you know, groups in the school, and then coming together in this, like, it was a basement room, it was cozy, there were snacks. Um, and like Melissa said, we're like really building that trust with one another, like, these students who were essentially strange, we were strangers to one another. Um, and then, yeah, and then being you know, given compliments or constructive feedback or knowing that they're, like Melissa said, you're getting to the uh, best version of your own story. And I think it's really different. Like, obviously you give feedback in creative writing classes or, you know, other things like that, but it's all for the purpose of getting an A on a paper uh, or something like that. And with this, it's just about feeling good about what you're sharing with the world. And that is something that I, I don't think you're ever given the opportunity to do as a young person. And like Melissa said, not necessarily as an adult either. And then what are, what are some of the tips that, and what's an example of one of the, the next steps of other than great job that to, to help storytellers, you know, connect more? Yeah. I mean, I think for as someone who was in the workshop, um, it was, whether or not I'm going to take some of the feedback and implement it into my story. Um, and then also for that day that you're getting on stage to tell the story, having all of that love and, and encouragement from your um, workshop peers build over time. Uh, and that I think if you do feel nerves and I'm sure, I'm sure I felt nerves on that day. I mean, I'm speaking now from many years later, but I think that really encourages you to get up on stage because you know that people already love your story uh, and you're just sharing it to some more folks. I remember the first draft of your story, Eliza, was pretty tight. We didn't move it, move the needle very much in working on it. But 
Uh, I do remember, I'm, you're just, you're so good at scene. Just now, even in this conversation, you're good at scene. But you drop us into a, a moment in time and really, you paint the picture beautifully. And we talk about that a lot in workshop spaces. And I feel like we use your story as an example in a lot of our workshops to to show people how to do that. So well done, you know? <laughs> a little bit of <laughs> a little cloud of love for you right now. I I love it. One, you know, there we are at a moment. You mentioned, you know, back when when you did your story, Elisa, you told your story, it was before the pandemic. It was in a different more innocent time in a way, a lot of ways. This I'm hearing more and more with is a tough time. We have so many challenges that young people are well aware of and that we're all well aware of and, and Volga's gone through the pandemic. I, I wonder how the stories you're hearing now and the episodes of grown you're assembling, like what's different now than even just a few years ago? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I really think the kids are going to be all right. Like the stories that we're hearing are just the way that young people are thinking about the world around them, about how they navigate the world is so much more complex and insightful than I remember, you know, being at that age. And I actually just, um, for season two of Grown, we just had an interview with a, a young a storyteller, she's 16. And my jaw was like being picked up from the floor left and right during that conversation because um, the conversation was about bullying, which is a heavy topic. She'd experienced bullying, but the compassion she had for the person who was bullying her, thinking about, oh, well, what is that person going through and what kind of world are they navigating? It just made me feel so hopeful and proud of the young people today, like knowing they've gone through something as traumatic as a pandemic, having lost family members, potentially having their, you know, their life uprooted, I think has made them more resilient. And of course, I'm speaking in blanket blanket statements, and that's not necessarily true for everybody. But from what I'm hearing on Grown um, is that young people are really, really compassionate and, um, and also have a lot of grace with themselves, which I think is really important when you're navigating your teen years. How about for you, Melissa? What are you seeing that's different, if anything? I think specifically coming out of the pandemic, we met a lot of young people who were feeling very isolated very unseen and unheard. So having something like our workshop space was really valuable as a place of connection and tapping back into themselves, tapping back into making social connections with others. Um, But yeah, I love that the kids are going to be all right. I agree. They are... They're going to be okay. They are finding themselves in each other again. There's an eagerness and an openness toward that that is is really visible. I yeah. I, I wonder if the, the, one of the things that the moth is is really known for it, as as a longtime listener is people getting at topics that aren't always discussed in a very raw and and an open way, and it can get pretty heavy. And you're you've alluded 
to some of these young people stories that are dealing with topics of trauma and, and, you know, not the best day of their life. So do you, are you concerned, especially with having young, younger storytellers with kind of whether, you know, I can see how these workshops are safe spaces where they have these wonderful experiences that are therapeutic, but are there downsides to, and do you worry about them sharing this so publicly in an era of social media and, and, and having more trauma come of it? Um, yeah, that's another really good question. Um, I think what's important is that every person who's on grown is given, you know, they, uh, give their consent for their story to be aired. Something that is said repeatedly in workshops, um, is that we tell stories from our scars, not our wounds. And so making sure that the story is something that people are even ready and willing to share, um, but I can also speak about my personal experience, having told a story at 17 and how I feel about it now. Um, of course, there were moments where I was like, hmm, is that something that I'm glad is out in the world? Is that, you know, I my perspective on that story is different. So the version of the story that exists in the ether is not necessarily how I would tell it now. And where I've landed on it is like, yeah, I'm really okay with that being out in the world because one, uh, we're allowed to change and grow and that I recognize as a version of myself uh, that told that story. And two, I've heard from, I've been very grateful to have heard from dozens and dozens of people about how hearing that story positively impacted them, made them feel heard, made them feel seen. And I think that's the part of storytelling that the moth really, really, uh, brings to light, which is the the impact it can have on other people, the way that our stories can help shape the way that other people are seeing the world. Um, and so I'm really glad that I was able to share that story and, and um, move, you know, move people in whatever way. That's so interesting. And Melissa, do you want to add to that? Mm, just to say, yes, we we're thinking about that all the time in our workshops, how to, there's no such thing as a truly safe space. So we're just trying to build the safest space possible. We talk about building a safer, braver space to hold each other in the work. We build community agreements at the top of workshops. We have connections at the school for any situation that comes up where we're not equipped to be that safety net for the young person. And that's really essential to everything we do is making sure we have those those lifelines. But yeah, I, we think a lot about how someone's perspective on a story might shift over time. And you know, we give the young person, we give all of our tellers the opportunity to tell us whether or not they want that story shared elsewhere. And, you know, and it's always up to them whether or not it's aired or um, we, yeah, that's, again, essential storyteller agency of a broken record on that front, but it's definitely <laughs> really important piece of our work. I think also, well, I with, oh, oh, sorry. No. I was just going to say one thing with grown is that um, we do reach out to every storyteller and ask them how their younger selves would describe them now. And we've gotten some really great answers that are commentary on either their story or the version of themselves that told that story. And so I think it's really fun. It's like a, it's like a little bit of a, a time capsule in that way for people of like, oh yeah, that's what I was like when I was 17 and now I'm 20, whatever. And this is what I feel about the world. Um, I, I love that part of the podcast hearing from, from folks about how they view them, their younger self. 
Yeah. And last question. I don't want to give the wrong idea. This is a lot of fun too. There are a lot of hilarious moments. There are a lot of like, you know, like kind of beautiful moments in the the stories that are shared. And, and I wouldn't just like ask about some of the themes and what you've learned, Aliza, in co-hosting. Like, you know, I, I see, you know, in looking at the the titles that you had, you know, the first one I believe is on heartbreaks and, and, and first kisses. And, and yet there, you know, and there are ones on um, puberty, body image, and swimsuits, um, periods, religion, and, re- and personal boundaries. So what are some of the things that you've learned about the kind of coming-of-age stories as you've done this, or what has surprised you? I think really kind of the overarching uh, thing that I've learned is that our experiences are a lot more similar than I think we're led on to believe when we're younger. I think Um, when you're younger, you sort of feel like you're the only person in the world going through whatever it is you're going through, um, whether it be emotional or an actual situation and hearing stories of other people navigating the difficult times of being a young person is really affirming. Um, and, and affirming for me also as someone that's on the other side of puberty, I hope at this point, um, uh, though I wouldn't mind a growth spurt, uh, you know, at this point, but you know, I, I, as an older person listening to these younger stories, it is still very affirming for the experiences I had, uh, when I was younger. And I think, um, we're always trying to unpack what, you know, th- those, um, teenage years or, uh, preteen years, they're moments that live with us forever. And so hearing stories that make me think about my younger years differently is um is really special that's great yeah it's funny because i i feel like that happens in the in the the traditional moth as well for all of us so that's really interesting that and and we all were young at one point yeah that's very true (laughs) well i know we're at time is there any other last words either of you before i let us go yeah, no, I, this has been really fun. I love chatting, storytelling, and grown. Um, and I think, you know, especially given your audience, and um, I, I'm really excited for educators to hear these stories. I, um, I'm not an educator myself, but as someone that's been educated, I think it's really, really special uh, when teachers hear their students uh, the way that they want to be heard. And um, I think grown is an opportunity for, for educators to do that. Well, thank you both. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Lisa. So now you've heard some of the behind the scenes. We thought you might be curious to hear that story Elisa told about eight years ago when she was 17 years old. The theme she was responding to was courage. So with permission from the folks at The Moth, here is Elisa's story. So... I was six years old in the first grade, and I was sitting at a table with my three best friends. And we were all really similar. Um, All of our moms bought us clothes from the children's place, and we all liked to play house during recess, and all of our names started with the letter A. There was Ashaya, Amanda, Alicia, and Aliza. And we were working on the icebreaker project of the first grade, which our teacher, Ms. Harrington, had assigned to us. And it was going to be self-portraits um, so that we could hang them up on the wall and get to know each other's faces and names. And I was really excited for this project. And I knew it was really special because there were three drafts. Um, and we were working on the final draft, which was going to be colored in. And I was super stoked for this because over the summer, my mom had bought me this coloring book um, that taught me all these really great techniques for how to draw properly. And I finally mastered coloring inside of the lines. And I was so excited to show my friends my new skills. I was basically young Picasso. 
And I also knew this was a special project because we were using oil pastels. And I loved oil pastels because they're really soft. So I would pinch off a little bit and melt it between my fingers. And they were expensive for my public school in New York City. And so each table got one box. And each box got, each box had one of each color. So you had to be patient and wait for your color to not be used. And at this point, I had colored in my shirt blue and the background green, and there was a little tree. And I had drawn in all the features of my face, which the book had taught me to do first. And I drawn my lips and my nose, and I was ready to color in my face. And all of my friends had used the peach oil pastel to color in their face. And since we were basically all the same girl, I figured I would use peach too. And so finally, when it was available, I picked it up and I started drawing so slowly, going around my lips and my eyes, and was coloring in all one direction. And I was watching as the oil pastel melts into the paper and my face come alive, and I colored inside of the lines. And when I looked down, it was like I was looking into a mirror. This girl I had just drawn was exactly how I see myself. And I feel my teacher, Miss Harrington, over my shoulder. And Miss Harrington loved it when people drew well. And so I was getting ready for her to praise me, to say, Aliza, that is the most beautiful self-portrait I have ever seen. I'm going to hang it above my desk so everyone who comes in can see it. And instead, Miss Jill Harrington says, Aliza, that's not your color. And I'm confused by this because I don't understand how colors can belong to people. But before I can find a way to ask her, she's gone to the oil pastel box and has started looking through it. And she doesn't find the color that she's looking for, and so she goes to the crayon bin. Now, every school had this infamous crayon bin that had bits and pieces of wrapped up and gross crayons that have been rolling around that bin forever, and I never went to the crayon bin, but nonetheless, Miss Harrington is rummaging through it, and she reaches in and she pulls out this little nub of a brown crayon that's unwrapped and gross, and she hands it to me. And I'm still really confused by all of this, but I've noticed my friends are staring at me and my heart is beating really fast and I want this to be over. And so I just grab the crayon and I start coloring in my face and I'm going in all different directions except for the fact that wax crayon and oil pastel don't mix together. They don't belong on the same paper, so it doesn't matter how hard I'm pushing because I can't get the crayon to stick and I'm coloring outside of the lines. And when I look down at this paper, I'm this grotesque monster that can't decide if she wants to be peaceful or brown, and I want to beg Miss Harrington, please don't hang this up. I'll do it all over again. I'll use the colors that you want me to, but before I can find the right word, she's taken my self-portrait and put it into a pile with all of my even-toned peach friends, and it gets hung up. And that night I go home, and I ask my mom why I wasn't allowed to be peach, and she explains it as best as you can to a six-year-old who's just gone through an identity crisis, and She says, you know, I'm not peach and your dad isn't peach and since you're our daughter, you're not peach either. But this confused me even more because my parents are just like my peach friend's parents. They sound the same, they make the same small talk, but they're not the same. And everyone seems to understand this concept of color and I'm not getting it and I don't want my mom to think that I'm stupid and so I don't ask her any further and I try to not think about it. But I didn't know where I fit, and I was stuck in this color limbo. But I finally graduated elementary school and moved on to sixth grade and thought I had left this whole concept of colors behind me. 
And so on the first day of sixth grade, I was really excited. It was a brand new start, and we're all trying to get to know each other by asking questions like, where'd you go to elementary school, and what's your favorite book? And this one kid comes up to me, and he says, what race are you? And I had never been blatantly asked this question before, um, and so I didn't have a prepared answer. And so I thought back to Miss Harrington and that brown crayon. So I told him I'm brown. And he gets this confused look on his face, and he says, what do you mean you're brown? Brown isn't a race. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I had finally said I'm brown, and it still wasn't enough. And then this little six-year-old girl deep inside of me gets really angry, and then I get really angry, and then I'm screaming at him. And I said, you know what? If I say I'm brown, then that's it. I'm brown. And he never spoke to me again. Which was fine, because I had finally found the words to stand up for myself. And I'd finally come to terms with who I was. And now I want to say that was the end of it, that because I was, you know, okay with who I was, that I never had to stand up or defend my race again, but that just wasn't true. I was growing up in post-9-11 New York City, where being brown put me in this category of others. And I had been questioned about who I was many times after that, and I had to reaffirm over and over that I'm brown, I'm brown, I'm brown because I've worked so hard to love the skin that I'm in and nothing anyone can say will take that away from me. And today, if you ask me to draw a self-portrait of myself, I would draw a confident young woman who's proud of her Afghan and Pakistani heritage, who is a proud American, and I would find the most beautiful, soft oil pastel to color in my face. No one would have to tell me to pick it up, and it would be my first choice. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. Please follow the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen. And while you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, please take a minute to leave a rating or a review. That helps others find our show. This episode was written and put together by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing for this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.